Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, your no-hype resource for all things crypto. I'm your host, Laura Shin. If you enjoy Unchained or Unconfirmed, my other podcast, which now features a weekly news recap after every interview, please give us a top rating or review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show. This helps other listeners find out about my podcasts. Kraken is the best exchange in the world for buying and selling digital assets. It has the tightest security, deep liquidity, and a great fee structure with no minimum or hidden fees. Whether you're looking for a simple fiat on-ramp or futures trading, Kraken is the place for you. CypherTrace cutting-edge cryptocurrency intelligence powers anti-money laundering, blockchain analytics, and threat intel. Leading exchanges, virtual currency businesses, banks, and regulators themselves use CypherTrace to comply with regulations and to monitor compliance. Crypto.com. Get their app and buy crypto at true cost with no fees or markups. Get a metal MCO Visa card with up to 5% back on all your spending. Want more? Download the Crypto.com app today. The topic today is China's digital currency, DCEP. Here to discuss are Martin Chorzempa, research fellow at the Peterson Institute, and Debbie Wan, founding partner at Primitive Ventures. Welcome, Martin and Debbie. Hey, Laura. Thank you. Before we dive into the topic at hand, why don't you each give a little background on yourselves and how you came to understand the financial technology sector in China? Martin, do you want to start? Sure. I arrived in China, uh, moved to Beijing in mid-2013, just at the moment when uh, Ant Financial, you know, Alipay was launched Yuobao. So I lived in China during the beginnings of its financial technology revolution and also the beginnings of its interest in, in Bitcoin and then uh, decided to go start a book project writing about fintech in China that I'm almost done with. And Debbie, what about you? Yeah, so I was born and raised in China. And um, so I did my undergrad, like uh, just back in Guangzhou. And so I'm a Cantonese. And so that is where the province and state is the headquarter for Tencent, NetEase, and Xiaomi, and then all this, uh, like uh, many of other just uh, Chinese tech giants. I moved to U.S. at the age of 20 to, um, so to get my master's degree in Carnegie Mellon University and like moved to Bay Area. Um, so right now, so I'm in Bay Area for about almost 10 years and I spent my first four years in just in eBay as engineer and product manager. Like that's when I learned about Silk Road, uh, as one of the, so as one of the marketplace out there. And so that was back in 2012. And I learned about Sutro and then for again to Bitcoin. And that's how I got into crypto and, you know, fintech, like marketplace, like in general. So like after eBay, so, uh, I work as venture capitalist and for like the rest of my life. And 
uh, pretty much cover anything fintech, crypto, and uh, marketplaces. Um, so have been doing this like uh, crypto related investment for like last four or five years and like, uh, like heavily involving all this community governance and uh, crypto asset investments and trading, mining, etc. Great. Yeah. And um, you also <laughs> often break news in the crypto space on your Twitter feed, which I find really funny because sometimes I see some journalists complaining like, hey, we were working on a story on that. And <laughs> Dovey just told everybody on Twitter. <laughs> um, anyway, okay, so why don't we get into all the events that happened around blockchain in China recently? Um, now, from my perspective, I would say kind of like the frenzy around all this began when Xi Jinping gave a speech on October 24th saying that China should seize blockchain. So why don't you guys just describe for me kind of like, you know, what he said, what you thought the significance was, and then maybe go into what you thought were the other big kind of like pro blockchain events and initiatives that happened in China afterward. And and you can also give your reaction to to each of these. Yeah, sure. So like first of all, this is actually not the first time that Xi Jinping uh like publicly uh pro- so like publicly promote blockchain. And so I think that's probably uh, like not to the knowledge of like many like Westerners out there. And so in about I think that's in twenty seventeen or like twenty eighteen. So he actually promoted blockchain, but in but like during like a smaller scale, just like net so like doing like a smaller scale uh public science conference. So I think like this time is like definitely like more significant because it's like a dedicated like long speech, um, so in a very core CCP meetings, right? And and then just like right after meeting, so like there's all this like public news out there and just like official CCP media outlet talk about it and then so have all these coverages. Um, so the narrative, so if we look into his speech, like the narrative, uh, so like a few things I want to highlight here is, uh, so first of all, uh, so he mentioned that like blockchain is the future and like China cannot lose the blockchain game and China needs to have the leadership position on it. And then also like during his speech and he specifically mentioned uh, other major nation states out there across the world are accelerating blockchain technology development and we have to do so as well. And then so he also said we need to focus on uh, helping to establish the blockchain standard. Because I personally, as a investor in all these uh, public blockchain projects, and I have no idea what the standard is because everything, you know, is a permissionless. And then so everything form a consensus like based on the community discussion. But like Xi Jinping did mention that to further enhance like China's leadership position, and we want to making the standard global, and then so we want to establish like like the blockchain standard like whatsoever. So I think these are the few things I want to highlight. So from his speech, so like like the overall narrative is like definitely extremely pro blockchain, but he didn't mention a single word of like Bitcoin or like any other you know, like the actual cryptocurrency out there. So if we read between the lines and then also thinking about like what has happened before, 
Like China's government is pretty good at this、uh, top-down planning and like infrastructure investment. Like as we can see, all the miracle of this like、uh, metropolitan development and like high-speed railway, etc. So like as the economy grows, like so like as the economy grows, like slows down, and Chinese government needs to further figure out like what's the next like infrastructure level thing to so for them to make investment on and. Potentially to get China onto like a leadership position, uh, before like any other countries. So I think like technology, like AI and like five G. So like those are the top picks for like last few years. And like this time, so like with like Xi Jinping's uh promotion on blockchain. So blockchain as a neutral database management technology is definitely being elevated like onto the priority list. So as the next generation infrastructure technology that,、uh, like the entire China will allocate resources,、um, so that is my personal take. Martin, what do you think? Yeah, there's a lot there.、Um, so going back to before Xi Jinping's talk, I view one of the most important events of China's support or at least interest in blockchain as、uh, the, the in 2014. When the central bank convened a group to study digital currency and blockchain to see if there's a way to use it both for regulation and for government purposes, and then soon after that, the state council,、uh, which is sort of the equivalent of China's cabinet,、uh, included blockchain in a government plan for technology development. So I, I view the the C remarks as a culmination of of a longer process that that slowly feeds. Up the bureaucracy. I think the timing is is really interesting, and and that、uh, you know, especially because there's been a, a sense that much of the hype around blockchain around the world got a little bit、uh, ahead of itself. So you know, ICO prices have gone down quite significantly. Now, Bitcoin is down quite a lot from its height, and uh, though uh, there have been an enormous amount of enterprise and other applications that have been announced. There really isn't any that appear to be a breakout success in terms of application for blockchain, other than Bitcoin and Ethereum. And even there, you know, there are a lot of issues with how many transactions they can handle,、uh, for example. So that makes makes me wonder, you know, why did why would this come out now? And I think the result it's it's a result of two things. One is the trade war. So if you look at how the trade war has extended into technology. Uh, the, the Chinese have found that the United States controls a lot of very foundational technologies for AI. For example, many of the chips are、uh, are produced are U- U.S. technology, and、uh, I think that China fears that if foreign countries, especially the U.S., are the ones designing the standards or controlling the basic technology for、uh, for blockchain, even even though the applications. Are further in the future, they view that as a potential threat to、uh, to national security, and that's why I think we see the phrasing of, of as, as a core indigenous innovation technology. That's the the phrase that that Xi Jinping used near the top, and then the second is as a response to Libra, which is also somewhat related, where China doesn't want a, an American company like Facebook. To be able to create a global blockchain networks that other people then build on, which might get in the way of China's attempts to internationalize the renminbi and have its tech companies go abroad, for example, in fintech markets all around the world.、Uh, so they want to be leading 
the standards and uh, and potentially helping even other countries develop blocked their own blockchain-based digital currencies and other systems so they don't have to depend on something like Facebook and can uh, get get hopefully get something out before Facebook succeeds and that might actually work. Yeah, so I want to add on to that. So I uh, so from my personal opinion and I don't think Libra is like significant enough like to actually require like just I just I see level attention. Um, and it's like a like hour long talk like during the CCP's core meeting, and also like Facebook has been like Facebook has been spending like like three four years, and just like Zuckerberg has been trying to be friendly with all these like Chinese government and like officers, and um, like basically trying to make Facebook accessible in uh, China market, and like which like didn't pull off, and uh, I think it's just a coincidence like. Probably so, like the timing itself, like looks like seems like a response, like to the Libra because it's just a like, second day, like after the Zuckerberg. So it's just second day after the Zuckerberg hearing, right? Um, uh, but so, but from my personal opinion, like the digital renminbi has been developed for like five years and it's actually close to launch. And then, uh, CCP happened to have that meeting as well. And then, so it has been scheduled long before. Um, and like, so everything is, is kind of like a very perfect timing in response to Libra. But, but like, but, uh, I think like China, like previously never responds to any, um, just like company from private sector for like any specific policy out there. So that's just my personal opinion. Martin, what do you think? Because I saw you tweeted something else. I mean, I think in a way, maybe both of you are right. I think this was something that was in the works for a long time, but I, I'm pretty sure I did while I was doing the research for this show, and I'll just have to look for it afterward. I do think that there was some statement saying that Libra spurred them to kind of like hurry it up a little bit. Like they, you know, had been working on this for a while, but then when they realized that Libra, um, you know, came out with its white paper and that this might launch next year, then they kind of, it just made them hurry up a little bit more. And I think maybe actually where I disagree with you, Dovey, is that um, the reason why I think they might pay attention to this, even though they might not pay attention to other, you know, moves by companies is that you know Facebook's user user base is bigger than the Chinese population, and it's literally. <laughs> I was trying to figure this out. I um I think it might be one of the only entities on Earth where they can mm-hmm. say yep. that. So, um, but anyway, actually, both I wanted to go back to a, a previous point you both made, which both of you basically said that you felt that China essentially wanted other um, countries or you know, technology groups, whether it's like, you know, companies or organizations, or perhaps even some of these decentralized networks to follow their blockchain standards. Do do you really think that that's like a realistic expectation on their part that people might do that? And, and, and why do you think that is their motivation? So it's potentially realistic because you can imagine a world in which if China launches a digital currency that works well and it's successful. And if they have, for example, you know, like 10 cents system working with tax authorities to, uh, to deal with uh, better tracking of invoices, if you have these domestic systems that actually work really well, 
then uh, there's a sense in which China's trading partners especially, but also maybe some of the financing destinations along the Belt and Road and, and others who do investments in China might want to make sure their systems are interoperable with uh, the Chinese systems, which are, say, proven to work. And uh, I can see I can see that happening, at least in, in some limited scenarios. There are some real questions around to what extent they will actually be willing to decentralize and allow some of the anonymity or at least pseudonymity that has been the feature of blockchain-based systems in other applications. Uh, but uh, but that's, that's really uh, an open question. I'm a bit skeptical about how their ability to either promote renminbi internationalization or get others to sign up on its standards. But I know that in, in other areas, like, for example, in 5G, Chinese companies have been extremely active in promoting standards. And I think that Huawei, for example, is part of, of many international uh, 5G standards, notwithstanding the, the security concerns that uh, many governments, especially the U.S., have voiced about it. Yeah, actually, let's keep talking about the standards issue, because um, this actually leads to like some other questions that I had, like about the significance of the cryptography law. You know, I was kind of curious, like, what that said and like, you know, why they have this cryptography law, but I'm assuming that has to do with standards. And then I happen to notice also this news about how they have these 500 different enterprise blockchain projects going. And um, Coindesk reported that the biggest categories of the projects are trade finance, asset management, cross-border payments, and supply chain financing. And I kind of thought, oh, you know, they have like this major role in global trade. So is this like, you know, part of their attempt to get companies and organizations outside of their own borders to use, to either use their technology or to actually use their, their blockchains that they're creating? Just uh, add on to what like Martin has said, uh, when we think about blockchain standard, and I think there are like a few different, um, so there, so there are like a few different layers and like the most fundamental layers and going to be, uh, what's the specific difference in like hashing algorithm, right? And, and when you build a specific blockchain protocol, and so that is the consensus layer. Um, so that's, so that is the consensus, um, uh, like consensus algorithm layer. So I have no idea how Chinese government can actually push that, uh, as like a one singular standard. And because, so because they're just assisting other either public or like semi public or just like private blockchains out there and using different consensus algorithms. Uh, and it seems to me that's impossible. And if we move, uh, to the upper layer and like the upper layer gonna be just like at the application layer, right? So at the application layer, I'm not too sure about what is the specific standard. Is it on like identity? Is it on like account, whatever? So, so is it on like, so it might be on account based identity and then many other just like a uh, cross blockchain, um, just like characteristics out there. And so it seems to me also it's hard to push out a, a specific standard out there. Uh, but like one thing I think they might be able to like leverage is if like consider we have like a China chain, right? So it's like a China whatever blockchain. And um, so all the other major scale internet company like Tencent, Alibaba, 
uh, Huawei. Um, so they all adhere to that specific blockchain like protocol. And so they be, so, so like they have been developing application on top of that. And then like also like it would allow like third party. So to develop their own applications and which means all the other blockchain developers can instantly tap into like this massive user base. And I think that can be a huge traction. So like that can be a huge traction to other third party like blockchain developers. And so either, uh, Chinese developer or just like foreign developers, uh, because of, so because the current problem of like all this, like, uh, public blockchain is that there's just like no adoption. Like the primary use case right now is trading and like all the exchanges, like they're like just, so they're, um, daily after users is on the low end of say, uh, like a hundred thousand. So that's like definitely not internet scale. And if you have this share platform and so that will allow you to tap into the internet scale traffic. And, and so like that will be a huge like add on. And so if they want to push for specific like standards and the protocols out there. So I guess like the one thing that I'm wondering is, the current internet in China is this, you know, like closed wall. Um, what do they call it? A, cl- a closed wall garden. So why would why would the Chinese want? I guess I guess like I guess my thinking is basically that if they make things interoperable, um, they also risk then kind of like losing oh. a little bit of control. No, no. So right, like no? under like. So like the underlying infrastructure is not going to be interoperable. Just I think about WeChat, right? WeChat is a closed source uh, operating system. And then so you as a third party developer and you can develop all this like WeChat enable uh, program. So like what's considered as like a micro program. And so like, like, um, WeChat has its own ecosystem, like just like Apple and WeChat has its own like app store, right? But the thing is like, WeChat as a messenger app or like as a operating system, like cannot be interoperated with like Facebook messengers, like say for instance, because like you as a developer, you have to adopt the same protocols like underlying, like the, so like the, so like just like right now, so all these are Ethereum like DeFi application. So can only work on Ethereum, right? And so like there's no Bitcoin DeFi yet, right? And, and so that is actually the same thing because the underlying chain and just like the underlying blockchain infrastructure, uh, like the tech layer, like has to be, like has to be cohesive and like there's no like, just like cross chain thing, uh, among the other public blockchain. And so like the, so like the third party developer is basically purely adopt the same consensus algorithm and like the same, um, and like just like the same blockchain infrastructure and then building application on top of it. And so that's a very like a typical thing, even right now. So in, so even right now in the public blockchain domain. Okay. So. Yeah, I, this leads me to a question about censorship, but but I actually feel like um, because we haven't actually discussed the digital yuan yet, why don't we just dive into some of the details on that? Because that is obviously the biggest news. 
So why don't you guys describe for me your understanding of, you know, what this aims to be, this DCEP, which stands for Digital Currency Electronic Payment. What does it aim to be? How will it be structured? When and how do you think it'll roll out? Why do you think China wants to launch it? Just kind of give me everything that you understand so far about it. So a lot of the elements of it are pretty unclear at the moment. Uh, because we have to rely on a few speeches, many of them uh, in private, who, who've had their transcripts leaked, uh, to know what's going on. Uh, so far, the plan seems to be, at least at the beginning, to replace cash, to at, le- at least a piece uh, of cash, and create a system that allows a cash-like digital currency to be transacted. So that means you know, you'll have a digital wallet. The idea is to maintain what they call the two-tiered system now, which is that the the central bank manages the currency. But uh, in terms of what actually touches consumers, they're going to be interacting with and buying these at the commercial banks in the country. Maybe also Alipay and Tencent. That part is, is unclear. But at least it's going to be like the banks. You come in with one renminbi and you can buy a unit of this special digital renminbi and you're probably going to use some sort of digital wallet. What's really important about this is that it appears that the central bank will not actually be providing direct central bank access like accounts to consumers. That's one of the biggest Mm -hmm. question marks in central bank digital currencies going forward, because that would totally change the way the financial system functions if you can go right to central bank, uh, because most of the money is actually created at the moment in our financial systems at the commercial banks. Uh, So they're saying, well, we're not going to touch any of that. We're just going to replace cash. We don't want to compete with Alipay balances, Yuabao. We don't want to compete with Uh, bank deposits, which would disrupt the financial system, only cash, which is already a liability uh, of the central bank. So like cash, they've talked about having it uh, quite limited and difficult to use in a sense. So you you have a limit in the amount of money you can have in the wallet and a limited amount of transactions you can make to kind of make sure that it mimics the the fact that cash, especially in China, you know, the largest bill is 100 renminbi, which is worth something like between 15 and $20, much smaller than most countries. They made it on purpose difficult to use cash so that it's harder to use it for corruption. You know, officials get arrested in China uh, for corruption, and sometimes we find entire apartments full of bills. And uh, the amount of money actually isn't even that much in the grand scheme of things because the individual bills are worth so little. One of the key features of it is what they call uh, controllable anonymity. So you can use cash at the moment without any trace whatsoever, pretty much. You know, there's there's no, if you pay at a restaurant in cash, then they have no idea who you are. You've told them nothing about you. And there's no record of that transaction generated digitally anywhere. But now the way that Chinese interact uh, and have financial uh, transactions is generally through Alipay and WeChat Pay, which are tracking all of those transactions and also feeding that into questions about you know, how they evaluate you for credit and uh, what they want to market to you and all this. So the central bank is coming to people and saying, we're going to provide a more anonymous version of currency than what people are transacting with Alipay and WeChat Pay, but of course, we still want to get some underlying visibility into the system so that people can't use it to launder money and uh, get up to nefarious uses. That's another 
critical question about this. How much access is the central bank going to get? There are a lot of concerns that this could be used to actually increase the amount of control that the central bank and the government have over the economy by being able to view these transactions individually. Uh, whether it will use something like smart contracts is uh, – I don't think it will start that way, but they have talked about potentially adding it. You could potentially uh, automate payment of taxes. You could change transaction fees for different types of transactions to encourage or discourage them. You could have new kinds of monetary policy tools. A lot of possibilities are are open. So I'll, I'll uh, turn it over to Dovey to see what she has, what she thinks of this. Um, yeah, so from my perspective, and I think there's a very important like prerequisite for this digital renminbi, is that the Chinese society has been like has been cashless for like long enough, and which no other countries in the world is so advanced on getting rid of like physical cash. So like there will be little problem in you know user education, digital currency distribution, and like payment interface integration, etc. Um, so from my understanding, like the most intense or just a like, detailed literature about the design of this digital renminbi uh, was first published in about 2016. Um, so that's in a internal journal from just from PBOC. They have like a few chapters about um, what they think about this digital renminbi. Uh, like fast forward to now, and I think there are probably over like a hundred patterns, uh, like uh, over a hundred patterns under PBOC, um, specifically about digital renminbi. And like talking about the timeline, so like there, uh, I think there are like rumors like floating around saying. Uh, so it might be launched by November. So it might be launched by, no, uh, so by probably like mid this month. And, but I think that's probably just a uh, too rush. Um, so realistically speaking, and I think the earliest it can launch any just a like, very smaller scale experiment, like going to be by the end of this year. And, uh, so I'm not too optimistic about it. And, uh, most likely, so like the child gonna launch like early next year. And from what I heard, it can be in Shenzhen or like Hangzhou. Uh, like the full rollout. And I think at least it will take another 12 months. And because there's a lot of like coordination and just the infrastructure change is massive. And like talking about like the bigger picture, uh, just like, just like Martin has said, like the biggest question right now is, whether PBOC like wants to use this new medium, like this a uh, new medium of like cash, because it is not physical cash. Um, so like unlike physical cash, like it can be fully anonymous, and so uh, like people have like just like when people transact with a physical cash, and it can have like pretty much an actual like pretty much actual privacy. But if we look at the current major problem of the China's financial situation is the shadow banking is actually what makes the uh, economic, just like over economic, like on the verge of like explosion. And China right now has more than 10 trillion like shadow banking asset. And then all of this is actually out of the, so like all of this is outside of the visibility of PBOC. If we look at the empty monetary supply of China, close to 30% of monetary supply 
is actually under the sector of like shadow banking. Shadow banking basically are peer-to-peer lending and all these like wealth management products, like things like that. These are all outside the regular commercial bank's balance sheet. So I think from my perspective, um, one of the most important purpose for this digital renminbi, at least at domestically, is right now, like commercial bank has much like has much more power, like when it comes to monetary supply and also like monetary policy and then also issuance. And I think this can be a major monetary experiment as like it will be the first time. So it will be the first time to make central bank like PPOC in this case with like direct inference on the monetary supply and daily economic activities. And I think also it will make it possible to have a pro, uh, so, so, I think it will make it possible to make the monetary pulse so to, uh, so to probably enable PBOC, uh, like they will be able to program like the monetary policy. Like, say for instance, so like, say for instance, if the Chinese government like wants to cool down like the real estate market, they can simply do so by subtracting the monetary flow into that specific sector. Like if we consider everything will be back to M0. So if we consider a large portion of the monetary supply going to be full reserve based, I think that might be the bigger picture that like PBOC like has been thinking. Okay, we need to dive a little bit more into that, but we're going to have to do that after this short break um, so we can hear from the sponsors who make this show possible. Crypto.com sees the future of cryptocurrency in every wallet. Have you seen the MCO Visa card? A metal card powered by crypto, loaded with perks including up to 5% back on all your spending and unlimited airport lounge access. They pay for your Spotify and Netflix too. What's not to love? With Crypto.com, not only can you spend your crypto, but you can grow it too. Earn up to 6% per year on the most popular coins like BTC, XRP, LTC, and up to 12% per year on stablecoins like PAX or TUSD. Just a few taps before you start receiving interest every week. Join the over 1 million others and download the Crypto.com app today. Will the world follow France and advocate banning privacy coins? Will government-backed stablecoins become the new fiat? Are distributed and peer-to-peer exchanges just a flash in the pan? The answer is maybe. Virtual currencies can flourish and create a new, private, and more versatile economy. But that grand vision can't happen without keeping crypto clean. And that requires support of governments and accountability for bad actors. Privacy-enhanced compliance using cryptographic controls has the potential to preserve anonymity without compromising legitimate investigations. CypherTrace is working on this vision of the future. Sign up to stay up to date on the Privacy-Enhanced Compliance Initiative and receive authoritative crypto AML reports quarterly. www.cyphertrace.com slash keep crypto clean. Today's episode is brought to you by Kraken. Kraken is the best exchange in the world for buying and selling digital assets. With all the recent exchange hacks and other troubles, you want to trade on an exchange you can trust. Kraken's focus on security is utterly amazing. Their liquidity is deep and their fee structure is great with no minimum or hidden fees. They even reward you for trading so you can make more trades for less. 
If you're a beginner, you will find an easy on-ramp from five fiat currencies. And if you're an advanced trader, you'll love their 5x margin and futures trading. To learn more, please go to kraken.com. That's K-R-A-K-E-N.com. Back to my conversation with Martin Shorzempa and Debbie Wan. <laughs> so, Debbie, when you said that if the real estate market was getting a little bit too hot and the central bank wanted to cool it down a little bit, they could just stop the flow of money into like I, I, I don't even understand how that is possible. So right now it is not possible, like because like most of the like the inventory, so like most inventory of the monetary supply, so it's actually in the control of the commercial banks, and so PBOC has no direct like control, right? Right, and, right. But I'm saying if, yeah, yeah with, with this central bank digital credit, how would they do that? Yeah, like, so assuming everything is like, so assuming the entire GDP and the entire monetary supply is on this digital renminbi, right? So like that can be a very extreme case, but uh, let's assume that. And all the commercial bank and they will have their account, like, so they will have their, like, just a note or, like, whatever. So they will have their account, like, with the PBOC because, like, all the commercial bank will be the distributor uh, of this, so, like, of this digital renminbi. So they have to basically uh, ask for the approval of issuance and then, like, ask the approval of, like, any circulation uh, of this digital renminbi, right? Uh, and then... Like the entire ledger gonna be on the private cloud, like of PBOC, and so like that's why PBOC will have the overall visibility on like what's going on. Like, say for instance, uh, so if like this much of the renminbi is actually issued by China Merchant Bank, like say for instance, and like to a specific endpoint. So if like that endpoint gonna be as a real estate company or like a local, so or or like a local major uh, China um, uh, real estate, so or like a real estate like developer, uh, so they can actually make specific endpoints, so that is not visible or like that is or like that is not like accessible to getting into this monetary flow, and so if like everything is on the same ledger, so. Like that will be possible because uh, right now there's like a disconnection. So there's like a disconnection when, so when all the commercial bank like talking with their own clients. So the disconnection here is the PBOC cannot get involved or like just interfere whenever commercial bank is. So whenever all the local commercial banks are interacting with their own clients and then like with like any potential monetary output. So like okay. that can be a very like extreme case, but I think if partial of the monetary supply and like M0 gonna be on this like blockchain rail, um, so there's a lot of things that can be creative. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I obviously we're getting a little bit into speculative territory here because, you know, it's not like the whole entire money supply will be uh, in this digital currency. But um, I do take your point that uh, the central bank definitely will have more control over the money supply and possibly over credit creation. So I just, yeah, I, when I was reading a little bit about that, it did make me wonder if that could, uh, if the rollout of this DCEP um, could affect kind of the growth of the economy, which frankly probably has been fueled by a lot of this M2 activity. 
Well, do you guys have an opinion on that? Yeah, I, I want to add um, add a little bit to this to this context that uh, that, that Duffy was mentioning, which is that there's generally a perception that Chinese companies are tools of the state. You know, if you talk to people in Washington D.C., for example, uh, and assume that that the Chinese government can get access to whatever data it wants on uh, on on anyone at any time, and uh, my research into the financial sector. Uh, shows just how wrong that is in in many cases. The people at the central bank have been frustrated for years about their inability to get uh, Alipay uh, and Tencent Pay to share data with them on the transactions that are occurring. And if you look back at uh, our, the aftermath of the financial crisis in China, uh, they they tried to clamp down on the bank's lending. But there was so much pressure from other actors like local governments to keep the credit taps flowing that the banks just move everything off their balance sheet and started using all this shadow lending, and the authorities just kind of let it happen. So there's an enormous amount of activity that occurs in China, which the government can't really see. And uh, despite all the surveillance cameras and other things that have grabbed a lot of headlines,、uh, in many cases, Chinese private companies are able to stand up to the government. And they have their own powerful political backing, and、uh, play. Sometimes the, the bigger they are, the more they have to play in these factional political battles that might, you know, make make a Chinese entrepreneur sometimes much more powerful than than a Chinese government official, depending on you know high, how highly ranked they are. And and one of the things that could change with that is, you know, as the Chinese government has made it clear that they want more. Uh, control and more ability to to access data, and there's a big question as as to as all these new infrastructures are built, will the company's ability to resist data requests、uh, continue to exist in China? And I think that's a big question. That's really important.、Hmm. Yeah, that's a really nuanced picture that I feel like we don't normally get. You know, I feel like you're right that the conception is that the big Chinese companies are. Uh, kind of just like an, an extension of the Chinese government,、um, but I actually want to go back now that we've kind of discussed the structure of the DCP to talk a little bit more about some of the themes that were coming up earlier in the conversation, like about whether or not China could use this digital RMB to internationalize the currency and help it gain adoption abroad. You know, there's a lot of talk when you read some of the materials online about how they have this Belt and Road Initiative and how that. It, you know, will connect 65 countries in Asia, Africa, and Europe. And I just wondered, like, you know, is that one way where they could kind of leverage, you know, this network that they're creating and and push the digital currency? And you know, if not, like, or or you know, whether or not you think so, like, I'm just curious, how likely is it? Do you think that either companies or or people in other countries will want to use a Chinese currency? So there's like a trend just all over the world, and so there's a trend of just say de-dollarization. And so if we look at the global reserve of like U.S. dollar asset, like it has been shrinking like over like past few years, and RMB、uh, is actually picking up as one of the like, alternative reserve like in some of these central bankers like out there in the world. And so I think 
most of these the other nation states has to like has to make their own decision. Um, but the ultimate goal is always to diversify their own like reserve like portfolio. Um, so they have to ask them. So they have to ask themselves the question like, would they prefer like their like, current dependency on like U.S. Federal Reserve? Or like they might be adding on to more dependency on, um, just like the, uh, so, and just on the PBOC, right? Um, so I think it will be a very like open question to many central bankers out there, but just fly with the trend of like reducing US dollar asset. Uh, so in like foreign exchange, um, reserve. And then also given China has bigger and bigger cloud along this Belt and Road initiative. So because like right now, so if you go to some of these like local Africa countries and like you can see massive like infrastructure investment coming from these like, state-owned enterprises. And like there's already just like good enough and like huge amount of like trade between Chinese company and like local governments and just like and then also local private sectors. And so I think the digital renminbi itself, like, can actually facilitate that trade, like, become, like, more smooth. And because, like, so because it will actually make the interbank settlement so potentially easier. Uh, and then like, also, if we think even further, so the, so PBOC might be able to export this um, so this uh, digital VR infrastructure and then helping the other like underdeveloped country and then basically to help them to leapfrog like the credit base or like the traditional base like banking system out there. And then so the entire Africa country, so some, um, so say for instance, it can be like Uganda or like whatever. So they can actually like a leapfrog and then to have the same level of like advancement as what the, so as what the, um, China society has. Um, I think like if I'm CCP and that's definitely in place in my favor. So I have a much more skeptical view. I think that might be possible in the very long term. But, uh, although, you know, I haven't seen the, the data on dollar reserves going down, but I did see that uh, actual international use of the renminbi has actually declined. And if we look back to a few years ago when there was this exchange rate reform in China, uh, which also was corresponding uh, at the same time with much tighter capital controls that made the renminbi harder to use, uh, since then renminbi internationalization has pretty much not advanced at all. So I think about payment systems usually in the context of network effects. Uh, you, you need, and also the, the ecosystem. Uh, you need to be able to plug into lots of other countries. And the ecosystem here is like financial infrastructure. Are there ways for people who are trading different currency pairs, especially your currency, to be able to borrow in it, to be able to freely use it, to be able to hedge risk by, uh, you know, by, with financial instruments? Are the markets liquid to buy and sell? And, uh, and so far, even though the renminbi, you know, is part of this existing financial infrastructure with a network that all of the central banks are and, uh, and player, financial players around the world are plugged into, people are not demanding to use the renminbi more. And, and I think that's an important sign because if you have a digital currency uh, that runs on some unique architecture and requires a duplication or a completely separate set of 
infrastructure to be built around it to be able to use it. I mean, they're going to have this DCEP, but nobody else is going to have anything analogous to it for a long time. And that means I, I just don't see how that makes it easier to internationalize than using the existing infrastructure, especially when much of this is unproven. And you know, we consider that one of the main reasons it hasn't internationalized is because China's government hasn't been willing to release some of the control, capital controls and free usability of the renminbi. So unless this digital renminbi has different characteristics and is more is not as tightly controlled, I don't see how other countries would want to use it. I mean, they don't want their countries to renminbiize any more than they want it to dollarize. I can imagine that they might work together to develop a digital currency with from their own home currency. But many of these countries, even if they're getting large investment from China, still want to protect their sovereignty and be be very careful about maintaining their own domestic currency. So I, I kind of feel like the, the renminbi internationalization piece, there's a lot of demand for a separate architecture than what ex exists, which gives the United States enormous leverage. There's talk about alternatives to SWIFT, which is the messaging system that's used for most glo global uh, cross-border payments. But uh, I'm not convinced that uh, digital currency is the, at least in the short and medium term, the way that this is going to get fixed. Yeah, so I just pulled the data out. And so I looked at the global dollar share of the reserves and versus like the renminbi share of the reserve. And actually starting from like 17, just uh, so, so like starting from like 2017, so the dollar share of reserve actually declined from about 66% uh, right now to 61%. And like the renminbi share of the reserve actually increased from 1.1% to close to 2%. Like, even though it's a single digit percentage, but like, if we think from just like, like growth perspective, so that's almost like a hundred percent growth. Um, so I think all the central bankers around the world and so whatever, so they want to do like to diversify their, like, so to diversify their reserve portfolio and other than dollar and so other than dollar, Japanese yen, and then so all this as your suspects. And renminbi is definitely like probably the most promising like candidates. So uh, they can potentially have on their reserve portfolio. Um, and then also add on to this um, payment has never effect. And so I totally agree on that. Um, I think from just a strategic planning, like, Alipay and WeChat Pay can potentially as the children horse. Um, so for this like digital fiat currency or like digital renminbi, and then to be widely used, like in the just like outside China, and, and so so it's all about usability, and then so it's all about uh, how many offline merchants so can actually accept this payment. And I think if like PBOC can actually facilitate that from happening, just I have, um, so potentially have a better policy when it comes to foreign exchange settlement, things like that. Um, so that can actually drive the adoption really fast. That's my two cents. All right. So we, we have so many topics. So I'm going to have to move you guys along a little bit more quickly. 
In the backdrop of all this uh, discussion, especially around what currencies it is that some of the other countries, like smaller countries especially, will want to hold as their reserve currencies, is the Libra question. But before we get to the Libra question, I actually want to ask about one other aspect of the digital currency, the digital yuan that Martin brought up earlier, which was this controlled anonymity aspect. Um, because I wonder if this also will play into whether or not other countries will want to use the digital yuan. And, you know, here, and, and granted, I have no idea. Um, I, literally the only stuff I know about China is like what I read in the Western media. And, um, apparently, you know, there were these stories around the social credit system that then later other reports said, like Ch- Chinese pe- people were saying, like, this is overblown. Um, yeah. however, you know, one, report that I saw did say that by the end of 2018, um, people who had poor social credit were barred from purchasing plane and train tickets 23 million times, which, okay, granted, it's a huge country, but still, that, that sounds quite alarming uh, to, to like, I think anybody who grew up in a place like the US, that, that just feels kind of crazy. So I just wonder, like, um, you know, how do you, first of all, how do you think this controlled anonymity will work? How much surveillance do you think it actually, you know, has? And how do you think that will affect, uh, you know, other countries wanting to use the currency? Something quick on on that social credit. So uh, what, what you're talking about is a is a blacklist. Like if you uh, if you borrow a lot of money and then default on your loan and uh, refuse to pay it back, and the court. Uh, and a Chinese court judges that you can could pay it back, but you're maliciously not paying it back, or you're refusing to comply with the court judgment. Then they put you on this uh, this travel blacklist. It doesn't happen from not visiting your parents enough, or like not writing enough positive things about the party <laughs> yep. online, you know, or any or any of that stuff. So you know, there's a, there's an element in which the, there's a score that Alibaba creates with uh, sesame credit that's a totally separate thing that got mixed up there isn't like some some number that if it falls below you're you're barred from it so i I wanted to make that clear Uh, but uh, in the controlled anonymity part that's an area where there's probably a lot of debate and disagreement even within the central bank about what ultimately this will look like because they really have to do a balancing act here if there's too much government surveillance of it i don't think people will use it both internationally and uh, even in China, you know, if you if if the Chinese people know that someone at the party is going to be able to watch every transaction they make, they're not going to use it unless you force them to. Uh, I would I would think. Uh, but uh, my sense is what they'll do is allow you to transact anonymously with very small amounts, and then as amounts get higher that you're transacting, and the risks of money laundering get get higher then they will impose more identity verification. And that's a a similar system that they've used for digital payments, where they require more pieces of identity, for example. And much of it is about just being able to transact without giving any information about yourself to to a a merchant that you're paying, and uh, also without giving it to the big tech giants. So you might want to buy your booze, your Baijiu and cigarettes with a DCEP instead of Alipay because you might have your Sesame score get get lowered a little bit and and have it a little bit harder to get a loan from all, from Alibaba, but uh, but but so far it's really hard to know where they're going to come down on on the amount of privacy they will allow. Hmm. 
Okay, so let's actually just turn to Libra since, uh, as I mentioned, this I feel like this has been part of the conversation, even though we haven't really been discussing it. So do you agree with Facebook's pitch to the U.S. government that Libra is its best strategy for countering kind of like the threat from China? And also, do you think that Facebook is being genuine about saying that since, as Debbie mentioned, you know, not too long ago, Mark was like trying to court the Chinese Communist Party. And Debbie even had this tweet where uh, he had a book by Xi Jinping on his desk. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So I think like the Libra thing, if we look at just like back in the history on like why Facebook wants to have this project initially. And I think uh, Facebook is being very opportunistic and like Zuckerberg being, you know, so Zuckerberg being as a businessman. And so I have like no problem of him just like being shaky on a lot of things and just um, like talking about one story in front of the uh, CCP and then like the other story. In, so like, so like the opposite story just when it comes to like the uh, U.S. Congress, right? And I have like no problem with that. But I think Libra <laughs> itself, like the Libra itself is uh, like after five years of like David Marcus with uh, Facebook and as a head of the messenger, like it has been trying really hard just so basically to like push out something similar as like, WeChat Pay. But like, so I think they didn't just do a good job, right? So like the, like the in-app, payment a transaction just like didn't just like um just so they are not able to like pull it off and so like the whole libra project uh i think started about one and a half years ago and it's kind of in a rush and i think like facebook actually use this like to formal the just simply to formal the U.S. government and like because we are in like this like geopolitical tension and trade war with like China and like this can be like Cold War like 2.0 and so like so to be honest like the best way so like to be honest like just like to think from U.S. perspective in order to make like the digital version U.S. dollar uh leading the game. And I think the easiest way is just to like have the Fed like like so I think like the easiest way is that the Fed should just allow all this like, private sector, no matter it's Libra, no matter it's Coinbase, no matter it's Tether, and then as long as like there's like, enough like stable coin, one on one backed by like US dollar, and then like those like, stable US dollar coin can be the interface, and then so they can compete with each other and then so to better user adoption better user experience and but as long as like the backhand is all packing to us dollar so that is how the us dollar can actually have the uh so like have the leading position of this digitization of the money game like it does not have to be libra like even though i agree Libra has a very massive like user access. And so I think like the other thing is Libra wants to bypass the current uh US commercial banking system. So like that's why at the very beginning, like the 27 Genesis node or like you said the Genesis partners and none of them are actually commercial bank. And I think the US government should also support uh major commercial banks like JP Morgan and um and like the other 
like actual commercial banks out there and then allow them to have their own just like digital US dollar coin. So their own version, because at the back end is actually still dollar. And so in that way, they can actually further enhance like the dollar position, like in the whole digital world. And they don't have to align or just like being extremely supportive on like any of this uh, party from the private sectors. Martin, what do you think? So I would say there's a grain of truth in what uh, in what Zuckerberg has said, because if you look at WeChat's attempts to expand abroad, they've pretty much all failed, mainly because Facebook and WhatsApp already dominated communications and chat in all those countries. And that was the basis for WeChat's, you know, uh, that was a spearhead for, the, for their ability to create a super app in China and compete with Alipay. They use this advantage in chat. And Facebook's user base is enormous. It's all around the world. So you can imagine that that this would be a great way to head off Chinese fintech companies and uh, Chinese financial institutions' ability to uh, to expand their success in China abroad. And that's what some of the Chinese have explicitly said that uh, you know, a PBOC official uh, noted that Ultimately, it could be that if Libra succeeds, it's just going to be the dollar that uh, that ends up winning. But I don't necessarily see that geopolitical uh, potential advantage to the U.S. as a reason to just allow Libra to go forward, because there are so many unanswered questions about how this will work, and uh, and it's really unclear whether the existing regulatory system around the world could handle. The, the potential challenge that that could result if the over two billion Facebook users suddenly immediately find it easy to use uh, Libra in their in their existing apps if it just gets pushed out to them. You could imagine that uh, that say in countries like, like middle income countries or or places like Venezuela or Turkey where there there's a lot of inflation that people might dump all of their domestic currency for Libra. And that could be extremely destabilizing for those currencies. I don't, I don't expect that it would have much impact on the, on the advanced economies. But China's really afraid that, uh, of a scenario where, you know, it's easy for China to ban Libra and, uh, and have it not be a threat to China specifically. But if it catches on and becomes a unit of account and important for the digital economy all around the world, except in China, they don't want to find themselves in a scenario where they're isolated or find themselves having to let Facebook in to avoid being isolated. Yeah, yeah. One thing, um, and and this actually goes back to earlier when I was saying that I thought that I had read that one of the officials involved in Libra, or sorry, in uh, the DCEP did cite Libra as like a motivation. And yeah, I see here... um, Mu Cheng Chun, who is the head of the PBOC's Digital Currency Research Institute, said, um, quote, if Libra is accepted by everyone and becomes a widely used payment tool, then after some time, it is entirely possible that it will develop into a global super sovereign currency. We need to plan ahead to protect our monetary sovereignty. So I do think um, for this reason, actually, that the possibility that Libra might instead be released as different stablecoins pegged to a bunch of different fiat currencies, that that could um, kind of mitigate that fear that the Chinese have and, frankly, increase the potential that the digital yuan does end up having more power 
globally uh, than U.S. lawmakers might like. Um, so we're running out of time, but I actually really just want to ask a question about Bitcoin. Um, Alex Gladstein of the Human Rights Foundation came on my other podcast, Unconfirmed, and he said that he thought that all of this will end up being a blunder for Xi Jinping because he basically said that, you know, to learn about blockchain, you end up learning about Bitcoin and the Chinese will be more attracted to Bitcoin uh, than they will to the digital yuan. And, you know, I kind of brought up, oh, well, you know, in the past, people had said that they thought that the internet would open up China. And obviously that hasn't really happened. And you read these articles where Chinese people are just like, I'm happy with the internet I have. They're like, who cares about Google and Facebook and, you know, whatever. So, you know, do you think, but, but Alex was saying that money is a different thing. So do you agree with Alex that this could end up being kind of like a gateway to Bitcoin? Um, and if so, like, do you think that that will have some kind of effect on the power that the Chinese Communist Party has on China? So I think this blockchain blessing from C definitely help like just this generic, just a Bitcoin awareness uh, because blockchain and Bitcoin, these are two concepts that are like interrelated and it's very hard to isolate one from each other. And like we can see from all this uh, recent educational material um, released by CCP. And so they actually have to refer. So like, so they actually have to refer to the history of like blockchain and then actually mention Bitcoin. Um, because traditionally, uh, like in the like past few years, uh, like the narrative around Bitcoin among just like average Chinese is like Bitcoin is a scam and like crypto is a scam. Uh, and I think at least like, this kind of a narrative like can be eliminated. Um, but like we have to keep in mind that the average Chinese citizen, so and then like, also by Chinese culture, is very prompt to authoritarian statement. Um, so I think if the message from like the Chinese Communist Party is okay, blockchain is good, uh digital renminbi is good, I think most of the average like citizen will just uh, prompt into this Chinese version digital currency, but like probably not Bitcoin. And it might be in the very long term when like the Chinese economy, like, like probably meltdown and then, um, people are not happy with their current living just a situation, things like that. I think whenever there's a potential sovereign fiat crisis, uh, I think that can be a, um, just a cognitive, like, awaken moment, like, for the local Chinese. And so they might be considered, okay, so probably Bitcoin is actually the plan B. Like, the other thing to keep in mind is Bitcoin is already very expensive, like, in the eyes of, like, like any newcomer of this site. So just like any Chinese citizen, who, so like, who's new to digital currency or like cryptocurrency, like the average annual household income back in China is about, um, so it's about 10,000 US dollar every year. So whoever is new to Bitcoin in China, and I think 99.9% of the chance that like he or she will not think, so like he or she will basically think Bitcoin is already too expensive and then it is like too volatile. And so why I should buy into Bitcoin and then just instead of like, so instead of like probably buying into stock and just like um, probably stick with my current um, uh, just a daily renminbi uh, activity, right? And so I think there's a huge gap and just like 
there's a huge leeway before the Chinese citizen eventually consider Bitcoin as like a store of value. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And there's also the fact that uh, China's government has cracked down so much on cryptocurrency exchanges, made it difficult to buy Bitcoin in China. You can still do it through through some peer-to-peer methods, but uh, but it's not terribly easy. And many of the ways to buy it might appear quite shady for an average Chinese person. But I think it could actually, you know, this push to blockchain might actually backfire in another way, which is that this is a very new technology that uh, that is mostly unproven for for most of the applications and if there's too much investment in it and too much of an idea that you know that the, the top leader has said we need to apply it so we're going to apply it whether it makes sense or not it could actually lower chinese growth and make things less efficient by trying to jam blockchain into areas where it doesn't make sense especially if they're not willing to decentralize and and use it as the technology was originally intended. So uh, it's very hard now to be in China and be a, a blockchain skeptic, uh, which I think is, is an important viewpoint that needs to be there in these discussions. But no one, that kind of article would now get censored because you're, uh, you're disagreeing <laughs> with, the, with the top leader. And I think that's a, bit, that's a big problem. I would definitely agree with that. Oh, my gosh. That's, um, that's a hugely important point. <laughs> Anyway, okay, so uh, we've covered so much, but just one last quick question. I wanted uh, to hear from each of you on what your prediction was on how this global digital currency space race will play out. So I think my prediction is uh, giving all this resource allocation, and I think China will be the first one to launch a uh, nationwide scale um, just digital fiat currency. Like the U.S., on the other hand, because... Uh, they don't have less like, strong enough like incentive like given like the current U.S. dollar's leading position in like so in so in our global economy. Um, I think U.S. gonna be behind, and so there will be probably second tier, so second tier nation states, say for instance, potentially Canada or like potentially Singapore. Uh, I think they will also catch up to the game as well. That is my prediction. Do you think Libra will will be a player or no? Uh, I think like Libra, they have to be U.S. dollar pack, and so if like they can be a hundred percent U.S. dollar pack, but like not a basket of like the other currencies, and I think they have a chance to, uh, so basically to like get the approval from like U.S. so from so from the U.S. government. Um, I think that's like a big if. Okay, and Martin. Yeah, I would tend to agree. I think that generally the way that uh, blockchain is developing in the U.S., there's so much regulatory uncertainty that uh, I don't think most of the, um, you know, I think it's going to be held back there compared to places like uh, like Singapore. Um, Libra is a big question mark. Uh, I would actually think that some of the smaller countries and smaller central banks are going to be the first to issue central bank digital currencies before China. Like maybe Sweden will do it before China. And uh, actually, uh, countries like Uruguay have already done uh, pilots where they've put central bank digital currency in the hands of, uh, uh, they've actually done pilots where regular people can use it. So China, would, if it comes out with a pilot, won't be the first to do so. Uh, but it, it might be the, I think it'll be the first major economy to, to end up 
doing so. But I think Libra has more of a shot in the in the short and medium term to be successful internationally. Okay, great. All right. Well, we will check back in on how you guys did. Um, thank you both so much for coming on Unchained. Oh, no, no, no. Sorry. I'm sorry. Actually, before that, where can people learn more about each of you? Um, so f- so f- just for all the audience out there, you can follow me on Twitter at W1 uh, or just send. So probably also send email to me at W at Primitive Ventures. And for me, I'm uh, at Chorzempa Martin on Facebook. It's a long name, but uh, it's not too scary. C-H-O-R-Z-E-M-P-A Martin. Uh, and then uh, my my profile with all of my work is on the Peterson Institute website. If you just search for my last name and P-I-E, that'll come up. And then you can read uh, all of my blogs and policy briefs and other stuff, including writing on uh, central bank digital currency. Okay, great. All right. Well, thank you both so much for coming on Unchained. Thank you, Laura. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about Martin, Duffy, and the China DCEP, check out the show notes inside your podcast player. If you're not yet subscribed to my other show, Unconfirmed, which is shorter, a bit newsier, and now features a short news recap, be sure to check that out. Also, find out what I think are the top crypto stories each week by signing up for my email newsletter at unchainedpodcast.com. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Factor Recording, Anthony Yoon, Daniel Ness, and Josh Durham. Thanks for listening.